where again we have instru- uh, not instructions now, but the impl- implementation of what we read a bit of from Exodus 26, the, the curtains, the framework, and the veils, or you could call them the doors, but they were more like veils. And this is what we read. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen were doing all the work of the sanctuary uh, came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment and they they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, uh, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim they made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. The curtains were all the same size and he coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the salvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge uh, of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain On the end of the second set, the loops held one curtain to another and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it might be one tabernacle. He made curtains of goat hair uh, for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set. And 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set. He also made 50 bronze clasps to couple uh, the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skin dyed red and a covering of badger skin above that. For the tabernacle, he made boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was ten cubits, and the width of each board a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one uh, to another. Then he made for all the boards of the tabernacle, uh, or thus he made, and he made uh, boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side, forty sockets of silver he made to go under the twenty boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons and for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each socket of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle and they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus he made both of them for two corners uh, so there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars 
for the board on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for, for the boards on the uh, of the tabernacle on the far side westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made a veil of blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was Worked with an artistic design of cherubim, he made for it four pillars of acacia wood and over, overlaid them with gold and with their hooks uh, of gold and cast the four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver and its five pillars with their hooks. And he overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold, but their five sock- sockets were bronze. And let us pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for this text. We thank you for every word of, of Scripture and, uh, and of the Old Testament, words which we confess we are perhaps apt to neglect. But, God, we ask you that now through the preaching, you might take even a text like this and bring it uh, to life for your people and help us to see exactly how it has relevance even to our lives today. For every word of yours is life-giving. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are entering now four chapters uh, which in themselves explain the reluctance of many preachers in preaching Exodus. Uh, In outlining the book, you know that uh, for four chapters, the instructions concerning the tabernacle will be outlined. And then in four chapters at the end of the book, you're going to have the same exact material repeated. Uh, Only instead of it being the instructions, now it is the actual implementation and, and these are chapters, let us be honest, which in our own personal Bible reading, we are most likely to skim. I skim them. Uh, they're not typically verses of detailed biblical study. Uh, but I hope it is your conviction, and it's certainly mine, that every, as I said in the prayer, every word of God is life-giving. And given an opportunity for a detailed study, uh, this is something of an exciting opportunity. Uh, to be uh, more specific, the outline uh, of the instructions which the Lord gave on the mountain occurs in chapters 25 through 28, and those are closely mirrored in chapters 36 through 39, where the building actually occurs. And so these chapters, chapters 36 through 39, which we're beginning tonight, uh, and we'll, we'll set aside for, for one week, since I'll be off next Sunday, but resuming in the new year, uh, are, are basically a repetition of what we've already considered. Now, uh, the structure is as follows, considering the mirror that occurs, or the mirroring that occurs, concerning the, the, uh, the dimensions of the tabernacle and of the priestly garments, those also need to be constructed. Uh, and it doesn't line up exactly, but it looks like this, number one, Instructions concerning the curtains, the wooden framework, and the veils. That occurred in chapter 26. It is implemented in chapter 36. Number two, instructions concerning the construction of the ark, the table, the lampstand, and the anointing oil. That occurred in chapter 25. Here you can see the order isn't exactly the same, but it is implemented in chapter 37. Number three, instructions concerning the outer courtyard of the tabernacle, the altar that was to be constructed there, and so forth. Chapter 27 and then implemented in chapter 38 and then instructions concerning the construction or or the making of the priestly garments. Chapter 28, which is implemented in chapter 39. That's the basic framework. 
noting the parallel between these two sections. So what we're doing is considering anew the tabernacle and the priestly garments in a, in a new set of sermons. And I see this as yet another opportunity for instruction. When I think of my own biblical illiteracy, and I would imagine that it somewhat resembles your own since we're all products of, uh, of 20th century Protestantism, which basically was an era in which the Bible ceased to be taught, and everybody forgot what was in their Bibles. When I think of my own biblical illiteracy, nowhere is it more apparent, I would say in my ignorance of the Old Testament, but even more narrowly, nowhere is it more apparent than in my ignorance of the tabernacle and, and of the priestly ministry that occurred there. And yet, I, I think we could all agree that that is surely lamentable, if only because we're talking about God's word. And every word uh, which uh, the Lord utters is a word by which man is made to live. But more specifically, it is lamentable given the fact that the center point of salvation, as found in the Gospels and then as found in the proclamation of the Gospels and the Apostles, occurs at the cross, which is the new covenant place of sacrifice. And for that reason alone, uh, one would think that uh, the old covenant instructions concerning the old covenant priesthood in the place of sacrifice and seeing those, uh, especially as I've been underlining, as the place of worship. One would think that this would be a rich uh, opportunity or subject of study for the New uh, Testament Christian, a point of deep spiritual interest. Not only that, but we also read that the tabernacle was patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. It's something that the writer to the Hebrews says. And so here's an opportunity. Remember, I said that Exodus is the Hebrews of the Old Testament to again consider what are uh, such wonderful themes that uh, not only cause us in the Old Testament to look forward with eagerness to the coming of Christ, uh, but also uh, a teaching which illumines that work once it happens things such as the priesthood the shedding of blood by which remission is achieved atonement substitution uh, and on and on we go and so these are themes uh, that old testament or, or excuse me new covenant christians ought to be familiar with in fact if you read hebrews there is there is the assumption that there is an underlying familiarity he doesn't go into detail. He assumes that you understand these things and that you are able then to see the work of Christ in light of that. We ought as Christians to be familiar with the tabernacle and all that occurred here. And, and, and it is especially noteworthy, I believe, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that every, every piece of the tabernacle is referenced in one way in the New Covenant. Well, here is a, a brief summary of the passage uh, the new, I meant the New Testament, not the New Covenant, excuse me. Uh, we find verses 1 through 3, the workmen are called to, to the work, and they're given the offerings for the work that were collected in the prior episode. That's verses 1 through 3. They come, uh, those workmen come to Moses, number 2, and tell him there's too much, verses 4 and 5. That's one of the more remarkable instances in Scripture. Uh, we, we don't often read that the people gave more than they could use. And yet that's actually what had happened. The church was not only here amply supplied, it was oversupplied. 
They had more than they could possibly use. Let me just say, happy is the church with such a dilemma. Number three, we see in verses six and seven that the leaders urged the people to stop giving. Imagine that. And from there, number four, we are given an account of the work that has begun. And that that is what will take us through chapter 39, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. First, the curtains were made after the divine pattern, verses 8 through 19. Then the boards and the wooden frame was constructed, verses 20 through 34. And finally, the inner and outer veils or doors were made uh, for the tabernacle itself, since it was a compartment with two rooms. And so there was a veil, an outer veil by which you could go into the holy place, and then an inner veil that would bring you into the most holy place, the inner chamber or the inner room, the inner sanctum, it's sometimes called. So there were two rooms and thus two doors. That is the basic picture of what we have here. The work begins and, uh, and, and, and they build or construct those three things. Uh, I want to divide the sermon under spiritual principles, number one, and then gospel principles, number two. And so the spiritual principles are more uh, broadly what uh, Gerhardus Voss would call signs. A sign is a principle that has relevance in any age. It had immediate relevance even in their own age. Uh, But then the types, the gospel principles, are things which pointed specifically to the coming of a new covenant. Uh, And so both things are going on here. First, we look for spiritual principles in what we read here. We notice in verses one through three, and I'll just read verse one, but you get you uh, you get a a sense of this from all three verses, uh, the gifts and calling of ministers and and, and Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the spirit or or the Lord, excuse me, had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the, the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. And then Moses called them and he put them to work and they got to work. What we see is, again, the gifts and the calling of of God's ministers in building the church. Everything that they possess, their gifts, their calling, their anointing. Even the gifts from the people, all of this comes from the Lord. He is the one who builds his church, who equips his church, who supplies his church and so on. And he does so in the same manner in every age. You read the account of these men and it becomes a very similar picture of what we read of the apostles or even of the deacons in the new covenant. He fills these men with a spirit of understanding and wisdom. That sounds like the New Testament deacon, doesn't it? He calls them outwardly by the voice of other ministers to the work, Moses in this case, and he supplies them for the work through the contributions of the people. Again, what we have here, as we saw in the last chapter, so again in the the beginning of chapter uh, 36, is a well-ordered, well-functioning church, which is uh, almost difficult to believe given their earlier apostasy and their later apostasy, though at least for a period here there were some who were stirred by the Spirit to do what the Spirit was calling. And there was indeed a remnant who was present. What is needed when this occurs, when the Lord equips a man and calls a man and sends a man, is a willing heart to obey the call. The minister, and indeed the Christian in the church, is to be, as the Puritans would say, a laborer, not a loiterer in the vineyard, eagerly doing the work which he's called to do. That's the first spiritual principle. Number two, simply be generous with what you have, beloved. 
as we saw in the prior text. So here, the theme remains the generous giving of the people. They were looking after eagerly and zealously, almost to an amazing degree, or, or, or I shouldn't say almost, to an amazing degree, the needs of the church. The church was oversupplied. The message is, applying this to the church today or in any age, as Paul speaks uh, to the Corinthians church, who was, well, they were equally generous, is that we are called to look after the needs of the church. That ought to be one of the priorities of the people. The zeal of the people here to give is a fitting picture of what the church should be in every age. And so the people should be generous in their giving. They should be eager to know if there are any needs in the church. The emphasis of scripture is always be generous in your giving. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. He loves to reward a cheerful giver. In other words, if we were to see this as a picture of the New Testament church, let the church operate always out of a surplus of funds, not a deficit. This is a picture of just that. Uh, On this point, Matthew Henry comments, most need a spur to quicken their charity. Few need a bridle to check it. Well, again, it's almost amazing to say, but that was exactly what was happening here. And, and so let me encourage you uh, to, to continue to be generous in your giving. I won't say let us be a church like that because we already are. I continue to be amazed at the generosity uh, of this congregation and the, and the giving. It's amazing. I sometimes tell other ministers and they say, did you really bring in that much money this month? It is a point, uh, not of pride, but of thanksgiving. There is a surplus of funds in this church. But, but, but do not become stingy in your giving. Don't say, you know, the church has too much. I'm going to stop giving so much. That is something which is a rare and a precious jewel. That is something that ought to be prized and maintained. Again, not as a point of pride, but as a point of thanksgiving. But we see on the other side of that, in verses 6 and 7, that was verses 4 and 5, how careful the leaders were with the funds, the surplus of funds. They did not take from the surplus and fill their pockets. Certainly the temptation was there, and you can imagine already there was a test which was present to these men whom the Lord had called, Bezalel and Aholiab. What would they do with the excess of funds? And we could say, how many might have done so? But these were honest workmen, honest, honest laborers in the vineyard, and over the household of God. They had no interest in pursuing personal enrichment from public funds. It was simply out of the question. That is not to say that uh, the workmen ought not to be amply supplied. That is exactly what we have here. But seeing that they were, and they had more than they could possibly use, as in the case, for instance, of this church, well, then that surplus ought to be wisely managed. And that is one of the... Uh, the exciting opportunities we have at the end of every year is to look at a surplus of funds and ask not how can we enrich ourselves, but rather how can we use that work to bless other churches? And that's exactly what we plan to do. But turning now, moving uh, away from verses one through seven and, and looking at the tabernacle now for the remainder of the sermon. We can find spiritual principles there as well as to the curtains. We notice how the tabernacle is God's house and as the tent of meeting was a tent. It was a humble dwelling. 
when you see what they were actually constructing and you think about the fact that they were making curtains and they were just draping them over boards that they constructed, you realize this was a tent. And this signifies, this humble dwelling which became the meeting place between man and God, it signifies God's condescension, his gracious condescension in dwelling with the people. And to engage in a bit of typology uh, in advance, we see this even more strongly in the body of Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, to use the language of John. But to think here, now in the Old Covenant, that the glory of God and even the inapproachable glory of God residing in the inner sanctum should dwell in so humble a dwelling. And this points to the station of the church even today, for it is not the temple that the New Testament speaks of, but the tabernacle and Israel in the wilderness that resembles the state of the New Testament church today. For in both settings we are but pilgrims, and we meet with God in but humble dwellings, not grand cathedrals, not in temples, but in tabernacles. Yet there was still something, we notice at the same time, this simple tent that was constructed, something, the beauty of holiness seen in the fine art in the curtains, or the gold which is overlaid uh, on the structure. And so it was humble, but don't, don't uh, say only that. Realize it was also skillfully and beautifully made. And thus God is seen here as ever to work in contrasts. A humble beauty, a splendid humility. As to the framework, it pointed to the strength and the stability of the structure. Even though it was portable like a tent, it nevertheless had a stable form. But the veils were the most significant feature by far. For both in their own way, both granted and barred entry. That's the point to see. They opened the way, but they also closed off the way. And thus the veils and especially the inner veil represented in a kind of beautiful contrast again. The way in which God might be approached in the person of the priest. And yet at the same time that he may not be approached. A God who is at once near and distant. And that was ever present in the consciousness of the old covenant saints. And even in the consciousness of the, of the, of the great, or excuse me, the high priest. And so the veils, the veils under the old covenant dispensation, both uh, represented both access and barred access to God, both realities at the same time. And in that sense, there is nothing, no feature of the old covenant that so capably represents the essence of old covenant religion and worship as the idea of the veil. And it is for that reason, as we've seen many times in the preaching of Exodus, that Paul seizes upon this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and says, the veil is really exactly what you find in the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant worshiper, the veil that rested not only over the inner room, but over the heart of the Jew. In fact, that's true even today. And only Christ is able to take the veil away in doing away with an Old Covenant and bringing the New Covenant. And so the veil becomes a picture, in a, in a, in a sense, of the entirety of the Old Covenant arrangement. But, but making that point and coming now to the typology that is present or the gospel principles, and there were three, uh, we notice first, uh, as we've already seen, 
that the New Testament church and her worship is typified in the tabernacle, and especially in the setting of the tabernacle, which was the wilderness, not the land. We do not resemble Israel in the land with a temple. You never read that in the New, in the New Testament. But we resemble, as the writer of the Hebrews says, Israel in the wilderness with a tabernacle, and there are important reasons for that stress. This is a point we must understand if we are to understand the true station of the church in this age. We are not yet, beloved, a church triumphant as Israel was in the land. We are ever the church militant as Israel was in the wilderness. We are a pilgrim people. And this is a point we can never be reminded of too often. It is the point which explains the present existence, the present struggle, the present sense of continual defeat. Because our existence as a pilgrim people in the wilderness is not settled. But it is one which is advancing ever closer to heaven, the promised land and the promised rest. Again, that is the exact imagery one finds in the New Testament, in Hebrews, for instance. And it explains so much of our present lot as Christians. We must not look for visible signs of the kingdom of God in this world, for we will not find them. We are rather, Jesus says, storing up treasures in heaven and we can only find them there. But our business in the world now is one of fighting and hostility and constant struggle and indeed one of seemingly continual defeat. It is not one of conquest, but one of trial and temptation. Be sure that you understand the difference Israel in the wilderness, Israel in the land. And ask yourself, which of the two resembles the church more? And which of the two does the New Testament say resembles the church more? The land is a picture of heaven. The wilderness is a picture of the New Testament church. And we will never be at rest until we enter that Sabbath rest promised to us. Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Hebrews chapter 4. And that rest will only be found in heaven. But something that needs to be said about that, uh, in case it seems that the picture that I'm painting is too bleak, and it is bleak. Uh, Don't tell me that Christians today are triumphing in America. They're not. But realize how it is that Christians are able to make it to heaven. And that really ought to be our only concern. How can I ever hope to make it to heaven? My goal is... To enter the promised rest and not to fall away in unbelief as Israel did because the trials and the temptations uh, crush your faith. Realize and see in the tabernacle the church is stationed in the wilderness, but God meets them there. And he sets up his tabernacles and, and, and gives his people their Sabbaths so that they are able week by week to find rest and refreshment as weary pilgrims. To meet with God in the place of temptation and to be refreshed by the realities of heaven itself. That is what God was offering to Israel in the wilderness and that is what he is offering to the church today. The reason that we believe as Christians that we will not get lost in the wilderness and never find our way to heaven is not because of our own strength. 
It's because of what we find in our earthly tabernacles, our places of worship, where we meet with God and the saints and where we keep our Sabbaths. That is what gives us the strength and the hope to make it. And so see the parallels and and be encouraged that God is able and he intends to meet with his people in the wilderness. Understand how it is that new covenant worship resembles tabernacle worship. Again, God meeting with his people in the wilderness. This is yet another lesson that the tabernacle offers to the New Testament church. The way God is worshipped after a humble and spiritual uh, fashion and the way in which God's people are sustained and strengthened in the wilderness even though that wilderness experience is one of seeming continual defeat. It is a place not of earthly fruitfulness, that's what the land was, but a place of earthly barrenness. Again, when you think of America today, I cannot think of a better description. It is not a place of fruit. It's a place of barrenness. Here's the biblical reason. But that isn't what we find when we come into the church. We find something altogether different, even the hope of heaven. So that's the first point, and it's critically important. But the second point is the structure of the tabernacle. The beams that were fitted and clasped together and, 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 and together strengthening the tabernacle and giving it a visible and a, uh, a, a well, it, it says one, one tabernacle, giving it a unity of structure. This is also, uh, if you can believe it, a picture of the New Testament church. Uh, and I base that upon Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Now, the metaphor isn't exactly the same, but it's close enough that it would seem that Paul very likely has the tabernacle in mind when he says this. He says, till we all come to the unity of the faith, that is one body, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Do you see that? According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body uh, for the edifying of itself with love. It's a bit of a mixed metaphor, isn't it? He's talking about a body, but he's also talking about a structure. Well, in the sense, a body is a structure because the bones function as the framework did here for the tabernacle. A body that's being built, much like the tabernacle. And the church is spoken of variously in scripture. It's, it's the tabernacle, it's the building, it's the body. Peter says something similar uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, let me see if I can find that. 1 Peter is... There we are. I can never remember. It's before or after Hebrews. It's after Hebrews. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Speaking of the New Testament church, he says, You also as living stones are being built up. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so when he looks at the saints, whether Peter or Paul, he's in essence saying that you are like the beams and the boards that together we're being fitted into a spiritual household. 
It's when the saints come together that a solid structure is not only being built but formed. And we're able to see how we as a temple or tabernacle of God are made to depend upon one another. How the stability of the structure depends entirely on every joint fitting together and supplying strength to the whole. Now again, that's exactly what was occurring in the tabernacle. That is also what happens when Christians gather together in Christian worship. When they come together, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, in a spirit of unity and meekness and brotherly love, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, living in harmony and not at odds. The building is one. Another picture of the church. But then third and finally... The typology present in the veils, and especially the inner veil, which was the door to the inner sanctum, it guarded the most holy place, and uh, much more so than granting entry, it was barring entry. Every day but one, every year, and every man but one, the high priest. Any mention of that door in the Old Testament, must always make us think of Christ. Just as it embodies uh, the principle of the Old Covenant, it also makes us think of the embodiment of the principle. uh, In many ways, the opposite principle is found in the New Covenant, embodied in Jesus Christ. Uh, It is precisely his work on the cross with respect to the veil that inaugurates the New Covenant. In other words, The veil is embodying the principle of the Old Covenant is precisely what Christ does away with. Which is why we read that that upon expiring on the cross, it may seem like a throwaway reference, but it isn't. It's deeply important that the veil of the temple was torn in two. It was completely destroyed as to its true purpose, which again was to bar entry to God. And yet Jesus was saying... Now I am the way to the Father. So that he not only does away with the veil of the old covenant, but now he becomes the veil or the door of the new covenant. I'm not being cute when I say that either. That is explicitly the language uh, language of Hebrews chapter 10. That we have a new and living way, the veil which is his flesh. A reference to the cross of Christ, his flesh or his blood uh, likewise. So how does he become the veil? Well, again, because it is he, especially as he is seen in his great high priesthood, shedding his blood for sinners and ever presenting that blood before the throne of grace. It is in that sense and in that sense only that he becomes the way to the father. Embodying and perfecting all that the old covenant priesthood represented. We are granted access Through him. No one comes to the father. But by me he says. I am the way and the truth and the life. But notice in speaking of this veil. We are not barred access. Jesus doesn't stand there. As uh, as though to stand in the way. That entire element. Under the new covenant. Is eliminated. We are rather. Granted a full and a free access through him. And we are invited simply, freely, and boldly to enter in. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Through a new and living way which he inaugurated through his flesh, which is the veil of a new covenant. And how glorious does his work appear when it is considered in this light. Not only what he accomplished at the cross for us, but what he did 
in light of the limitations and the restrictions and the imperfections of the old covenant. The significance of his work in this respect simply cannot be overstated for the believer. For his blood and his body become not that which bars access to the Father, but that which grants entry into the true tabernacle, even heaven itself. And this is not in any sense a metaphor or an image. This isn't a sign or a type as in the old covenant with respect to that veil. But it is the reality. It is precisely the blessing New Testament experience, uh, believers experience and enjoy by faith when they meet with God in Christian worship. Drawing near to God full of faith and communing with him after a spiritual fashion. And it is this above all, meeting with God in the wilderness that supplies the Christian with grace to help him to overcome temptation and to enter that promised rest. Now, you just see me uh, summarizing Hebrews and that's, that's how you preach Exodus. At least that's how I think you preach Exodus. But, but do you see at the same time as you're looking to Exodus how richly the Old Testament, especially in this period, supplies the Christian with categories by which he is to understand his present experience in the wilderness. Again, as a place of trial and temptation and barrenness. Not one of, 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 uh, of, of fruit and, and, uh, and flowing milk and honey as we read of the land. Again, as a picture of heaven. How are we to understand our present experience in the world? How are we to understand our present experience of salvation and of God? What is it in the Bible that helps us to make sense of the present evil age? It's the wilderness. And so may we ever find rich and fresh encouragement in our reading of the Old Testament, especially of this period, as a mirror of our own, as a a help to us in that way. Amen. And let us respond now uh, to the preaching by standing together and singing hymn number 187.